Part 3 of Half a Lifetime Ago by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From Household Words, a weekly journal, conducted by Charles Dickens. Number 291, 20th of October, 1855. Chapter 4 The vehemence with which Susan Dixon threw herself into occupation could not last for ever. Times of languor and remembrance would come, times when she recurred with a passionate yearning to past days, the recollection of which was so vivid and delicious that it seemed as though it were the reality and the present bleak bareness the dream. She smiled anew at the magical sweetness of some touch or tone which in memory she felt and heard and drank the delicious cup of poison although at the very time she knew what the consequence of racking pain would be. "'This time last year,' thought she, "'we went nutting together, this very day last year, "'just such a day as today, "'purple and gold were the lights on the hills, "'the leaves were just turning brown, "'here and there on the sunny slopes, "'the stubble fields looked tawny. "'Down in a cleft of yon purple slate rock, "'the beck fell like a silver glancing thread.' "'all just as it is today, "'and he climbed the slender swaying nut-trees "'and bent the branches for me to gather "'or made a passage through the hazel copses "'from time to time claiming a toll. "'Who could have thought he loved me so little? "'Who? Who?' "'Or, as the evening closed in, "'she would allow herself to imagine "'that she heard his coming step, "'just that she might recall the feeling of exquisite delight.' which had passed by without the due and passionate relish at the time. Then she would wonder how she could have had strength, the cruel self-piercing strength to say what she had done, to stab herself with that stern resolution of which the scar would remain till her dying day. It might have been right, but, as she sickened, she wished she had not instinctively chosen the right. How luxurious a life haunted by no stern sense of duty must be, and many led this kind of life, why could not she? Oh, for one hour again of his sweet company. If he came now, she would agree to whatever he proposed. It was a fever of the mind. She passed through it and came out healthy, if weak. She was capable once more of taking pleasure in following an unseen guide through briar and brake. She returned with tenfold affection to her protecting care of Willie. She acknowledged to herself that he was to be her all in all in life. She made him her constant companion. For his sake, as the real owner of Eunook, and she as his steward and guardian, she began that course of careful saving and that love of acquisition which afterwards gained for her the reputation of being miserly. She still thought that she might regain a scanty portion of sense, enough to require some simple pleasures and excitements which would cost money, and money should not be wanting. Peggy rather assisted her in the formation of her parsimonious habits than otherwise. Economy was the order of the district, and a certain degree of respectable avarice the characteristic of age. Only Willie was never stinted or hindered of anything that the two women thought could give him pleasure for want of money. There was one gratification which Susan felt was needed for the restoration of her mind to its more healthy state, 
after she had passed through the whirling fever, when duty was as nothing and anarchy reigned. A gratification that somehow was to be her last burst of unreasonableness, of which she knew and recognised pain as the sure consequence. She must see him once more, herself unseen. The week before the Christmas of this memorable year, she went out into the dusk of the early winter evening, wrapped up close in shawl and cloak. She wore her dark shawl under her cloak, putting it over her head in lieu of a bonnet, for she knew that she might have to wait long in concealment. Then she tramped over the wet fell path, shut in by misty rain for miles and miles, till she came to the place where he was lodging, a farmhouse in Langdale with a steep stony lane leading up to it. This lane was entered by a gate out of the main road, and by the gate were a few bushes, thorns, but of them the leaves had fallen, and they offered no concealment. An old wreck of a yew tree grew among them, however, and underneath that Susan cowered down, shrouding her face, of which the colour might betray her, with a corner of her shawl. Long did she wait, cold and cramped she became, too damp and stiff to change her posture readily, and after all he might never come. But she would wait till daylight if need were, and she pulled out a crust with which she had providently supplied herself. The rain had ceased, a dull still brooding weather had succeeded, it was a night to hear distant sounds. She heard horses' hoofs striking and plashing in the stones and in the pools of the road at her back. Two horses, not well ridden or evenly guided, as she could tell. Michael Hurst and a companion drew near, not tipsy, but not sober. They stopped at the gate to bid each other a maudlin farewell. Michael stooped forward to catch the latch with the hook of the stick which he carried. He dropped the stick, and it fell with one end close to Susan. Indeed, with the slightest change of posture, she could have opened the gates for him. He swore a great oath, and struck his horse with his closed fist, as if that animal had been to blame. Then he dismounted, opened the gate, and fumbled about for his stick. When he had found it, Susan had touched the other end. His first use of it was to flog his horse well and she had much ado to avoid its kicks and plunges. Then, still swearing, he staggered up the lane, for it was evident he was not sober enough to remount. By daylight Susan was back, and at her daily labours at Eunook. When the spring came, Michael Hurst was married to Eleanor Hebthwaite. Others too were married, and christenings made their firesides merry and glad, or they travelled and came back after long years with many wondrous tales. More rarely, perhaps, a dalesman changed his dwelling, but to all households more change came than to Eunook. There the seasons came round with monotonous sameness, or if they brought mutation, it was of a slow and decaying and depressing kind. Old Peggy died. Her silent sympathy concealed under much roughness, was a loss to Susan Dixon. Susan was not yet thirty when this happened, but she looked a middle-aged, not to say an elderly woman. People affirmed that she had never recovered her complexion since that fever a dozen years ago, which killed her father and left Will Dixon an idiot. 
but besides her grey sallowness, the lines in her face were strong and deep and hard. The movements of her eyeballs were slow and heavy. The wrinkles at the corners of her mouth and eyes were planted firm and sure. Not an ounce of unnecessary flesh was there on her bones. Every muscle started strong and ready for use. She needed all this bodily strength to a degree that's no human creature, now Peggy was dead, knew of. For Willie had grown up, large and strong in body, and in general, docile enough in mind. But, every now and then, he became first moody, and then violent. These paroxysms lasted but a day or two, and it was Susan's anxious care to keep their very existence hidden and unknown. It is true that occasional passers-by on that lonely road heard sounds at night of knocking about of furniture, blows and cries as of some tearing demon within the solitary farmhouse. But these fits of violence usually occurred in the night, and whatever had been their consequence, Susan had tidied and read up all signs of aught unusual before the morning. For, above all, she dreaded lest someone might find out in what danger and peril she occasionally was, and might assume a right to take away her brother from her care. The one idea of taking charge of him had deepened and deepened with the years. It was graven into her mind as the object for which she lived. The sacrifice she had made for this object only made it more precious to her. Besides, she separated the idea of the docile, affectionate, loutish, indolent will and kept it distinct from the terror which that demon that occasionally possessed him inspired her with. The one was her flesh and her blood, the child of her dead mother, the other was some fiend who came to torture and convulse the creature she so loved. She believed that she fought her brother's battle in holding down those tearing hands, in binding whenever she could those uplifted, restless arms, prompt and prone to do mischief. All the time she subdued him with her cunning or her strength, she spoke to him in pitying murmurs, or abused the third person, the fiendish enemy, in no unmeasured tones. Towards morning the paroxysm was exhausted, and he would fall asleep, perhaps only to waken with evil and renewed vigour. But when he was laid down, she would sally out to taste the fresh air, and to work off her wild sorrow in cries and mutterings to herself. The early labourers saw her gestures at a distance, and thought her as crazed as the idiot's brother who made the neighbourhood a haunted place. But did any chance person call at Eunuch later, or in the day, he would find Susan Dixon cold, calm, collected, her manner curt, her wits keen. Once this fit of violence lasted longer than usual, Susan's strength, both of mind and body, was nearly worn out. She wrestled in prayer that somehow it might end before she too was driven mad, or worse, might be obliged to give up life's aim and consign Willie to a madhouse. From that moment of prayer, as she afterwards superstitiously thought, Willie calmed, and then he drooped, and then he sank, and last of all, he died, in reality, from physical exhaustion. But he was so gentle and tender as he lay on his dying bed, 
Such strange, childlike gleams of returning intelligence came over his face, long after the power to make his dull, inarticulate sounds had departed, that Susan was attracted to him by a stronger tie than she had ever felt before. It was something to have even an idiot loving her with dumb, wistful, animal affection, something to have any creature looking at her with such beseeching eyes, imploring protection from the insidious enemy stealing on. And yet she knew that to him death was no enemy, but a true friend, restoring light and health to his poor clouded mind. It was to her that death was an enemy, to her, the survivor, when Willie died. There was no one to love her. Worse doom still, there was no one left on earth for her to love. You now know why no wandering tourist could persuade her to receive him as a lodger, why no tired traveller could melt her heart to give him rest and refreshment, why long habits of seclusion had given her a moroseness of manner and care for the interests of another had rendered her keen and miserly. But there was a third act in the drama of her life. Chapter 5 In spite of Peggy's prophecy that Susan's life should not seem long, it did seem wearisome and endless as year by year slowly uncoiled their monotonous circles. To be sure, she might have made change for herself, but she did not care to do it. It was indeed more than not caring, which merely implies a certain degree of vis inertiae to be subdued before an object can be obtained, and that the object itself does not seem to be of sufficient importance to call out the requisite energy. On the contrary, Susan exerted herself to avoid change and variety. She had a morbid dread of new faces, which originated in her desire to keep poor dead Willie's state a profound secret. She had a contempt for new customs, and indeed her old ways prospered so well under her active hand and vigilant eye that it was difficult to know how they could be improved upon. She was regularly present in Coniston Market with the best butter and the earliest chickens of the season. Those were the common farm produce that every farmer's wife about had to sell. But Susan, after she had disposed of the more feminine articles, turned two on the man's side. A better judge of a horse or cow there was not in all the country round. Yorkshire itself might have attempted to jockey her and would have failed. Her corn was sound and clean, her potatoes well preserved to the latest spring. People began to talk of the hoards of money Susan Dixon must have laid up somewhere, and one young ne'er-do-well of a farmer's son undertook to make love to the woman of forty, who looked fifty-five if a day. He made up to her by opening a gate on the road-path home as she was riding on a bare-backed horse, her purchase not an hour ago. She was off before him, refusing his civility, but the remounting was not so easy, and rather than fail she did not choose to attempt it. She walked, and he walked alongside, improving his opportunity, which, as he vainly thought, had been consciously granted to him. As they drew near Eunuch, he ventured on some expression of a wish to keep company with her. His words were vague and clumsily arranged, Susan turned round and coolly asked him to explain himself. 
He took courage as he thought of her reputed wealth and expressed his wishes, this second time pretty plainly. To his surprise, the reply she made was in a series of smart strokes across his shoulders administered through the medium of a supple hazel switch. "'Take that,' said she, almost breathless, "'to teach thee how thou darest make a fool of an honest woman, "'old enough to be thy mother. "'If thou comest a step nearer the house, "'there's a good horse-pool, "'and there's two stout fellows who like no better fun than ducking thee. "'Be off with thee.' "'And she strode into her own premises, "'never looking round to see whether he obeyed her injunction or not.' Sometimes three or four years would pass over without her hearing Michael Hurst's name mentioned. She used to wonder at such times whether he were dead or alive. She would sit for hours by the dying embers of her fire on a winter's evening, trying to recall the scenes of her youth, trying to bring up living pictures of the faces she had then known, Michael's most especially. She thought it was possible so long had been the lapse of the years that she might now pass by him in the street, unknowing and unknown. His outward form she might not recognise, but himself she should feel in the thrill of her whole being. He could not pass her unawares. What little she did hear about him all testified a downwards tendency. He drank, not at stated times when there was no other work to be done, but continually whether it was seed-time or harvest. His children were ill at one time, then one died while the others recovered, but were poor sickly things. No one dared to give Susan any direct intelligence of her former lover. Many avoided all mention of his name in her presence, but a few spoke out, either in indifference to or ignorance of those bygone days. Susan heard every word, every whisper, every sound that related to him, but her eye never changed, nor did a muscle of her face move. Late one November night, she sat over her fire, not a human being besides herself in the house. None but she had ever slept there since Willie's death. The farm labourers had foddered the cattle and gone home hours before. There were crickets chirping all round the warm hearthstones. There was the clock ticking with the peculiar beat Susan had known ever since childhood, and which then and ever since she had oddly associated with the idea of a mother and child talking together, one loud tick and a quick, a feeble, sharp one following. The day had been keen and piercingly cold. The whole lift of heaven seemed a dome of iron. Black and frost-bound was the earth under the cruel east wind. Now the wind had dropped, and as the darkness had gathered in, the weather-wise old labourers prophesied snow. The sounds in the air arose again as Susan sat still and silent. They were of a different character to what they had been during the prevalence of the east wind. Then they had been shrill and piping, now they were like low distant growling, not unmusical but strangely threatening. Susan went to the window and drew aside the little curtain. The whole world was white, the air was blinded with the swift and heavy downfall of snow. At present it came down straight, but Susan knew those distant sounds in the hollows and gullies of the hills pretended a driving wind and a more cruel storm. She thought of her sheep, 
were they all folded, the newborn calf was it bedded well. Before the drifts were formed too deep for her to pass in and out, and by the morning she judged that they would be six or seven feet deep, she would go out and see after the comfort of her beasts. She took a lantern and tied a shawl over her head and went out into the open air. She cared tenderly for all her animals and was returning when borne on the blast as if some spirit cry, for it seemed to come rather down from the skies than from any creature standing on earth's level. She heard a voice of agony. She could not distinguish words. It seemed rather as if some bird of prey was being caught in the whirl of the icy wind and torn and tortured by its violence. Again, up high above, Susan put down her lantern and shouted loud in return. It was an instinct, for if the creature were not human, which she had doubted but a moment before, what good could her responding cry do? And her cry was seized on by the tyrannous wind and borne farther away in the opposite direction to that from which that call of agony had proceeded. Again she listened, no sound, then again it rang through space, and this time she was sure it was human. She turned into the house and heaped turf and wood on the fire, which, careless of her own sensations, she had allowed to fade and almost die out. She put a new candle in her lantern, she changed her shawl for a maud, and leaving the door unlatched, she sallied out. Just at that moment when her ear first encountered the weird noises of the storm, on issuing forth into the open air, she thought she heard the words, Oh God! Oh help! They were a guide to her, if words they were, for they came straight from a rock not a quarter of a mile from Eunuch, but only to be reached, on account of its precipitous character, by a roundabout path. Thither she steered, defying wind and snow, guided by here a thorn-tree, there an old dodded oak which had not quite lost their identity under the overwhelming mask of snow. Now and then she stopped to listen, but never a word or sound heard she, till right from where the copsewood grew thick and tangled at the base of the rock round which she was winding, she heard a moan. Into the break, all snow in appearance, almost a plain of snow looked on from the little eminence where she stood, she plunged, breaking down the bush, stumbling, bruising herself, fighting her way, her lantern held between her teeth, and she herself using head as well as hands to butt away a passage at whatever cost of bodily injury. As she climbed or staggered, owing to the unevenness of the snow-covered ground where the briars and weeds of years were tangled and matted together, her foot felt something strangely soft and yielding. She lowered her lantern. There lay a man, prone on his face, nearly covered by the fast-falling flakes. He must have fallen from the rock above, as not knowing of the circuitous path, he had tried to descend its steep, slippery face. Who could tell? It was no time for thinking. Susan lifted him up with her wiry strength. He gave no help, no sign of life, but for all that he might be alive. He was still warm, she tied her maud round him, she fastened the lantern to her apron string, she held him tight, half dragging, half carrying. What did a few bruises signify to him compared to dear life, to precious life? She got him through the break and down the path. 
There for an instant she stopped to take breath, but, as if stung by the furies, she pushed on again with almost superhuman strength. Clasping him round the waist, and leaning his dead weight against the lintel of the door, she tried to undo the latch, but just now, just at this moment, a trembling faintness came over her, and a fearful dread took possession of her, that here, on the very threshold of her home, she might be found dead and buried under the snow when the farm servants came in the morning. This terror stirred her up to one more effort. She and her companion were in the warmth of the quiet haven of that kitchen. She laid him on the settle and sank on the floor by his side. How long she remained in this swoon, she could not tell. Not very long she judged by the fire which was still red and sullenly glowing when she came to herself. She lighted the candle and bent over her late burden to ascertain if indeed he were dead. She looked long, gazing. The man lay dead, there could be no doubt about it. His filmy eyes glared at her, unshut, but Susan was not one to be affrighted by the stony aspect of death. It was not that, it was the bitter, woeful recognition of Michael Hurst. She was convinced he was dead, but after a while she refused to believe in her conviction. She stripped off his wet outer garments with trembling, hurried hands. She brought a blanket down from her own bed. She made up the fire. She swathed him up in fresh, warm wrappings and laid him on the flags before the fire, sitting herself at his head and holding it in her lap, while she tenderly wiped his loose, wet hair, curly still, although its colour had changed from nut-brown to iron-grey since she had seen it last. From time to time she bent over the face afresh, sick and fain to believe that the flicker of the firelight was some slight convulsive motion. But the dim staring eyes struck chill to her heart. At last she ceased her delicate busy cares, but she still held the head softly as if caressing it. She thought over all the possibilities and chances in the mingled yarn of their lives that might, by so slight a turn, have ended far otherwise. If her mother's cold had been early tended, so that the responsibility as to her brother's weal or woe had not fallen upon her, if the fever had not taken such rough, cruel hold on Will, nay, if Mrs. Gale, that hard worldly sister, had not accompanied him on his last visit to Eunook, his very last before this fatal stormy night. If she had heard his cry, cry uttered by those pale dead lips, with such wild despairing agony, not yet three hours ago, oh, if she had but heard it sooner, he might have been saved before that blind false step had precipitated him down the rock, in going over this weary chain of unrealised possibilities, Susan learnt the force of Peggy's words. Life was short, looking back upon it. It seemed but yesterday since all the love of her being had been poured out and run to waste. The intervening years, the long monotonous years that had turned her into an old woman before her time, were but a dream. The labourers, coming in the dawn of the winter's day, were surprised to see the firelight through the low kitchen window. They knocked, and hearing a moaning answer, they entered, 
fearing that something had befallen their mistress. For all explanation, they got these words. It is Michael Hurst. He was belated and fell down the raven's crag. Where does Eleanor, his wife, live? How Michael Hurst got to Eunuch, no one but Susan ever knew. They thought he had dragged himself there with some sore internal bruise, sapping away his minuted life. They could not have believed the superhuman exertion which had first sought him out, and then dragged him hither. Only Susan knew of that. She gave him into the charge of her servants, and went out and saddled her horse. Where the wind had drifted the snow on one side, and the road was clear and bare, she rode and rode fast. Where the soft, deceitful heaps were massed up, she dismounted and led her steed, plunging in deep with fierce energy, the pain at her heart urging her onwards with a sharp digging spur. The grey, solemn winter's noon was more night-like than the depth of summer's night. Dim purple brooded the low skies over the white earth, as Susan rode up to what had been Michael Hurst's abode while living. It was a small farmhouse, carelessly kept outside, slatternly tended within. The pretty Nellie Hepthwaite was pretty still. Her delicate face had never suffered from any long-enduring feeling. If anything, its expression was that of plaintive sorrow. But the soft light hair had scarcely a tinge of grey, the wood-rose tint of the complexion yet remained, if not so brilliant as in youth. The straight nose, the small mouth were untouched by time. Susan felt the contrast even at that moment. She knew that her own skin was weather-beaten, furrowed, brown, that her teeth were gone, and her hair grey and ragged. And yet she was not two years older than Nellie. She had not been in youth when she took account of these things. Nelly stood wondering at the strange enough horsewoman, who stood and panted at the door, holding her horse's bridle and refusing to enter. "'Where is Michael Hurst?' asked Susan at last. "'Well, I can't rightly say. He should have been at home last night, but he was off seeing after a public house to be let at Ulverston, for our farm does not answer, and we were thinking—' "'He did not come home last night,' said Susan." cutting short the story, and half affirming, half questioning, by way of letting in a ray of the awful light before she let it fall in, in its consuming wrath. No, he'll be stopping somewhere out Ulverston ways. I'm sure we've need of him at home, for I've no one but Lyle Tommy to help me tend the beasts. Things have not gone well with us, and we don't keep a servant now, but you're trembling all over, ma'am. You'd better come in and take something warm while your horse rests. That's the stable door to your left. Susan took her horse there, loosened his girths, and rubbed him down with a wisp of straw. Then she looked about her for hay, but the place was bare of food and smelt damp and unused. She went to the house, thankful for the respite, and got some clapbread, which she mashed up in a pailful of lukewarm water. Every moment was a respite, and yet every moment made her dread the more the task that lay before her. It would be longer than she thought at first. She took the saddle off and hung about her horse, which seemed somehow more like a friend than anything else in the world. 
she laid her cheek against its neck and rested there before returning to the house for the last time. Eleanor had brought down one of her own gowns which hung on a chair against the fire and had made her unknown visitor a cup of hot tea. Susan could hardly bear all these little attentions. They choked her, and yet she was so wet, so weak with fatigue and excitement, that she could neither resist by word or by action. Two children stood awkwardly about, puzzled at the scene, and even Eleanor began to wish for some explanation of who her strange visitor was. "'You've maybe heard him speak of me. I'm called Susan Dixon.' Nellie coloured and avoided meeting Susan's eyes. "'I've heard other folk speak of you. He never named your name.' This respect of silence came like balm to Susan, balm not felt or heeded at the time it was applied, but very grateful in its effects for all that. "'He's at my house,' continued Susan, determined not to stop or quaver in the operation, the pain which must be inflicted. "'At your house? You nook?' questioned Eleanor, surprised. "'How came he there?' half jealously. "'Did he take shelter from the coming storm? "'Tell me. There is something. Tell me, woman.' "'He took no shelter. Would to God he had.' "'Oh, would to God! Would to God!' shrieked out Eleanor, "'learning all from the woeful import of those dreary eyes. "'Her cries thrilled through the house.' the children's piping wailings and passionate cries on Daddy! Daddy! pierced into Susan's very marrow, but she remained as still and tearless as the great round face upon the clock. At last, in a lull of crying, she said, not exactly questioning, but as if partly to herself, You loved him, then? Love him? He was my husband. He was the father of three bonny bairns that lie dead in Grassmere churchyard. I wish you'd go, Susan Dixon, and let me weep without you watching me. I wish you'd never come near the place. Alas, alas, it would not have brought him to life. I would have laid down my own to save his. My life has been so very sad. No one would have cared if I had died. Alas, alas. The tone in which she said this was so utterly mournful and despairing that it awed Nelly into quiet for a time. But by and by, she said, I would not turn a dog out to do it harm, but the night is clear, and Tommy shall guide you to the red cow. But, oh, I want to be alone. If you'll come back tomorrow, I'll be better, and I'll hear all, and thank you for every kindness you have shown him, and I do believe you've showed him kindness, though I don't know why. Susan moved heavily and strangely. She said something. Her words came, thick and unintelligible. She had had a paralytic stroke since she had last spoken. She could not go, even if she would. Nor did Eleanor, when she became aware of the state of the case, wish her to leave. She had laid on her own bed, and weeping silently all the while for her lost husband, she nursed Susan like a sister. She did not know what her guest's worldly position might be, and she might never be repaid but she sold many a little trifle to purchase such small comforts as Susan might need. Susan, lying still and motionless, learnt much. It was not a severe stroke. It might be the forerunner of others yet to come, but at some distance of time. But for the present she recovered, 
and regained much of her former health. On her sick bed, she matured her plans. When she returned to Eunuk, she took Michael Hurst's widow and children with her to live there and fill up the haunted hearth with living forms that should banish the ghosts. And so it fell out that the latter days of Susan Dixon's life were better than the former. End of part three. End of Half a Lifetime Ago by Elizabeth Gaskell. Read by Phil Benson in Sydney, Australia.